Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by State Historian Emeritus Walt Woodward and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. And I'm Mary Donahue for Connecticut Explored. It's almost spring, and we have a bubbly and refreshing episode ready to go. In this episode of Grading the Nutmeg, Natalie Belanger and Elena Peters of the Connecticut Historical Society take a look at the beginnings of our national obsession with soft drinks. Here in Connecticut, people have been drinking carbonated drinks for a long time, maybe longer than you'd expect. A hundred years ago, Connecticut was home to an astonishing number of soda bottlers. What's your favorite Connecticut soda? Hosmer's, Avery's, Fox and Park? This episode is best enjoyed with the sparkling beverage of your choice. Be honest, that sound you just heard made you want a soda, even if you gave up the stuff years ago. Carbonated drinks are cold, usually sweet, sometimes tart, always refreshing. Today, Americans' per capita consumption of sweetened soda drinks remains amongst the highest in the world. In the last decades, as we've all become more attuned to the negative health effects of sugar, unsweetened sparkling water has exploded in popularity. As you're about to see, that trend is bringing the consumption of carbonated water back full circle to its origins. Here in Connecticut, people have been drinking carbonated drinks for a long time, maybe longer than you'd expect. Today, the soda industry is dominated by just a couple of corporations, but 100 years ago, Connecticut was home to an astonishing number of soda bottlers. My colleague Elena Peters has been researching the history of soda drinking and soda making in Connecticut. Listen to our conversation to learn about the origins of the soda craze, its relation to prohibition, and the stories of the oldest surviving Connecticut bottlers. You'll also hear about some really weird flavor combinations you could once order at Connecticut soda fountains, like hot celery soda, or the hot beef egg, which, yes, is exactly what it sounds like. So warning, this episode might not be for the faint of stomach. I'm here today with Elena Peters, a collections associate at the Connecticut Historical Society. She's been working on a small exhibit about Connecticut's once robust, now much less robust soda industry. So Elena, welcome. Thank you. Excited to be here. So let's start. Uh, we're going to talk about Connecticut and the soda industry in a minute, but let's start with like, where does soda begin? When did people first start drinking carbonated water? Yeah, great question. So before soda, there was soda water. And before soda water, there was mineral water or spring water. That really dates back to, I mean, you could probably even say Roman times. People went to mineral springs to bathe. They thought that there were health properties to that water. But definitely in the 1700s in Europe, this was super popular and people began bottling that water to take it with them. And then, of course, you wanted to find a way to artificially manufacture the bubbly properties of that water, right? So in uh, 1767, a man named Joseph Priestley in England was successfully able to do that, infusing uh, carbon dioxide with water. So that's kind of when you when you first get carbonated water in the sense that we would have it today. That came over to the United States and was really popularized by a man named Benjamin Silliman, who is the very first science professor at Yale University. So this brings the story to Connecticut. Uh, down in New Haven in 1806, he built off of Joseph Priestley's and other developments and began selling it. How long? So this is very early in the 1800s. Mm-hmm. 
when does carbonated water or soda water, when does it really kind of hit like mainstream popularity? You know, I'd probably have to say 1890s is when you really see uh, carbonated water, especially in the soda fountain um, type environment. 1890s, well into the 1920s, all the way into the 1950s. If I were to pick a, a big height, it would definitely be around the turn of the 20th century there. Okay, so this highlights a real difference in the way that people access their soda back then versus now. So you said soda fountains. Um, so tell us about like, yeah, I've never been to a soda fountain, really. I've been to restaurants that dispense soda, but that's not the same thing. So what was a soda fountain? Tell me all about it. Yeah. So a soda fountain is essentially a giant piece of furniture. <laughs> it could come in a lot of different sizes, um, but you'd find these at drug stores commonly. And there's just a big long counter. People could sit at these counters on stools, but on the other side, you'd have this really nice big workbench with storage for your syrup dispensers and for your ice and things like that. And you'd have someone called a soda jerk who stood behind the counter and you'd draw the soda. Why were they called soda jerks? You know, I think, I don't know for sure, but I think it's because of the jerking motion of pulling the handle um, on that carbonated water to dump it into your syrup water, which you'd mix up, and that's how you had your soda. So syrup water, so they, they figured out that you don't just have to drink like what we would think of as plain seltzer water. So what kinds of syrups were they mixing into this and where did they get them? Okay, so I'll start with where they got them. Um, at a soda fountain, they often were making them themselves and you just use regular old fruit juice. We actually have some recipes at the Connecticut Historical Society in our collection of different types of, of beverages. You'd mix a simple syrup with um, extracts, fruit extracts or fruit juices. Um, and there were definitely some very interesting flavors, that's for sure. So in 1889, there's an excellent article from the Hartford Current highlighting what were the most popular flavors of the day. And vanilla was definitely at the top, but something called a phosphate was becoming very popular as well, which um, was essentially carbonated water and flavoring and phosphoric acid. So it would make it like this tangy sour taste. That sounds like poison. Who knows? People loved it. It, it. it tasted good to them, I suppose. I hear phosphate and I think, I think like soap. Like phosphate sounds like something you put in your laundry to make the whites come out whiter. No I don't clue. know if I'd drink it. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> or like, get me a lemon phosphate then. All right. Yeah, like orange was super, super orange popular phosphate. in 1889. Okay. There was also some really interesting flavors all the way back as far as 1859. I found references to nectarine and pineapple syrups. Which isn't, you know, terribly unusual, but you don't see a lot of nectarine soda out there. And in 1859, I mean, pineapple's a really exotic um, ingredient for people in the United States, especially in New England. Like, this is before Americans have colonized Hawaii. I mean, pineapple. How did you even know it was actually what pineapple tasted like? Yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> <laughs> if they're just pulling the wool over your eyes with this fake pineapple uh, stuff. Maybe. Who knows? I think um, there was definitely a push, though, at that time. You'd see people advertising you know, true fruit syrups and 
people definitely wanted to hype up the fact that they were having real ingredients in the syrups that they were making for the fountain. So I don't know where they got the pineapple from, mm -hmm. uh, or if it was maybe more expensive than some of the other flavors, but my guess is they did have it for real. So it's interesting that you're, you're saying, you know, in the 1800s, people are, they want to make a point that their customers know that the ingredients they're getting are natural, right? As opposed to, I guess, made in a lab. I, I, I didn't even really think about the idea of artificial flavoring being a 19th century phenomenon. Yeah, it's really interesting. The Connecticut Agricultural Station down in New Haven actually started giving reports on food products as early as 1897. Okay. Um, and in there, they were checking both the syrups at fountains and in bottled beverages for different adulterations is the terms that they used. So they were checking for the presence of salicylic acid, glucose, coal tar dyes, and artificial flavorings. So I don't know exactly what they'd use for artificial flavorings, but it obviously was something that was around and they were checking for it. Salicylic acid, that's, um, that's aspirin. I mean, so this is an interesting, so this highlights something interesting, which is people initially talking about soda as something healthful, right? So when you think about um, ingredients like salicylic acid being in there, you think of it as maybe something that is meant to be medicinal. But by the end of the 19th century, we're firmly in the territory of sodas are something you ingest because they taste good. Yeah, uh, largely speaking. So it's really interesting. Soda became popular against two cultural backdrops. So one is this mineral water health craze, which we've talked about a little bit already. Then also you have the temperance movement going on throughout the 1800s. And then in the 1920s in the United States, you have prohibition, right? So when people are looking for a refreshing beverage, mm -hmm. they can't turn to ale or other kinds of alcohol that they might have previously. So soda, I think, really exploded in part because of that. And I suppose that you think about the soda fountain, the the social space of the soda fountain is going to be, you think of it as a replacement for the social space of the saloon or the bar or the mm -hmm. tavern where you can't serve beer anymore. So you're going to serve sodas and hope you keep your clientele um, and hope you keep them happy, mm -hmm. which maybe for some people it was, I don't know, I'd rather have, I'd rather have a fancy soda than a beer, but Maybe I'm in the minority, I don't know. Well, uh, you could find some soda syrup flavorings that were alcoholic flavored, so maybe that was a way of kind of combining the two worlds. So you could go to a soda fountain and say, give me a soda that tastes like, what, beer? Um, rum? Porter. Okay. Hawk. Yeah, all kind of rum. There, it's, it's really funny. There's this great page in the Hartford Current where there's a list of these different flavoring, some of them alcoholic, like port, catawba, some of the others I already mentioned. And then on the same page, there's someone else who says, we do not pour uh, or draw sodas with these different flavorings so as not to interfere with the saloon business. So that was happening before prohibition, obviously, but it's kind of funny to see the contrast there. So they're trying to avoid ruffling the feathers of the, the booze businesses around them. Okay. Right, right. I know that there was, I mean, some of these flavors, vanilla, sound sound great to me, right? Some of the flavors, I'm still a little uh, questionable on the lime or orange phosphate thing. But I do know that there are, that soda fountains went in some really extreme directions with flavors that are just 
not anything that sounds appetizing in any way, and I almost refuse to believe that people even back then found them appetizing. Can you get, hit me with some of those? Yeah, so I think uh, now's the time to talk about beef nog, egg drinks, and hot soda, all right? <laughs> Ugh, I'm going to be sick, um, yes. Yeah, so we'll start with egg drinks. For some reason, beverages with egg shaken up in them were super popular at this time. Um, sometimes it was just egg whites, other times it was whole eggs. And you'd mix other things in there. I have a recipe in front of me for a beverage called hot beef egg, which is listed as hot beef nog in the index. And it calls for a fresh egg shaken up in a mixing glass. And then you pour uh, in some beef tea extract and hot water. And that was your hot beef egg beverage. So speaking of hot beverages, that's another really interesting discovery that I made in looking into the history of of soda. So obviously soda is normally a cool and refreshing beverage, right? You want it during the summertime. That poses a problem for this whole industry that's trying to make money off of soda fountains. So when the weather turned cold, they would start advertising hot soda, which sometimes was a warm variation on popular drinks like lemonade or ginger ale, etc. It would just be the syrups mixed in hot water instead of cold carbonated water. But sometimes it was anything but soda. So you have hot chocolate, you have coffee, you have tomato soup, you have hot beef egg like we just discussed. So there was a wide range. Uh, Celery beverages, that was another interesting one. Hot celery beverages? Yep. I have also come across a recipe for hot clam drinks. So clam and ginger and hot water. First off, I have a lot of problems with this. First off, it's soup, okay? Let's not call it what it's not. It's not a drink, it's soup. You should eat that with a spoon. And if you ask me why, I don't know. I mean, there's no sense or logic to it. It's just if it's a hot thing and it's not coffee or tea or hot chocolate, you should consume it with a spoon, not out of a cup. And I get that that really, when you look deeply into it. it makes no sense but i'm gonna die on this hill today elena those things should not be beverages can you also imagine like walk i think of like walking into a soda fountain if i could go in a time machine and i could walk into like a 1925 soda fountain i think of like you know again sweet flavors in the air i think of a place that's gonna serve like ice cream you know and then like but imagine the smell when like it's february and what they're dispensing is like soup like like clam soup and beef soup and oh man just it I, I think we need to move on <laughs> <laughs> well before we do the I, I just want to comment it in a way it turned the soda fountain a little bit into a lunch counter because they would you know advertise the fact that you could get your hot beverage and it's essentially like a little lunch yeah right? it'll fill you up yeah here's a slice of bread with your hot beef soda served oh. with some crackers okay oh. and there's an egg in it so yeah I call it lunch but yeah. I, I Listen, I, d- I disapprove deeply. We'll be back in a minute with our guest. I'm Kathy Hermes, the new publisher of Connecticut Explored. If you're enjoying our Grading the Nutmeg podcasts, I feel sure you'll love our print magazine with its articles, photo essays, and all the news about upcoming exhibits, history-related events, and historic places to visit. Subscribe now at ctexplored.org. Thanks for listening. Now back to our Grading the Nutmeg podcast.
So we've been talking about soda fountains, right? But when we talk about the Connecticut part of this, it's really like the bottling of soda that people can consume um, in their homes or perhaps buy in a store. Um, that's really where we get the Connecticut part. So tell me a little bit about that. When were people first able to purchase bottled soda to consume at home? Yeah, so that was another really surprising part of this journey. I was astounded to discover how many different bottlers there were in Connecticut. Um, as early as 1865, the Diamond Ginger Ale Company in Waterbury started you know, producing ginger ale, maybe other beverages, but certainly ginger ale for sale in a bottled form. Now, it was a while until that particular part of the industry really got super big, but um, by 1926, there were almost 300 bottlers of carbonated beverages in Connecticut. That was probably a mix of, you know, some doing soda, some just doing mineral waters, but uh, I think it's very likely that most of them were producing some sort of flavored beverage at the time. So in 1919, if this gives you an idea of when bottling really hit its peak, 1919 is when the Connecticut Manufacturers of Carbonated Beverages Association was formed. Um, and they were still going strong into 1959. I'm not exactly sure when they uh, folded. They served as an association for the bottlers throughout the state to connect with other organizations nationwide, uh, just for the benefit of their industry. And 1919 is perfect timing for prohibition. So I, I would imagine that there's a sense of like, okay, this, this new restriction is coming down. It's going to change the culture of how Americans consume beverages. And it makes sense. Like, yes, let's prepare for this onslaught we're about to have. Precisely. Sometimes you could buy the ingredients to make your own sodas at home. Tell me about that. Yes. Um, so in Hartford, in particular, there was a company called Williams and Carlton. They were a wholesale druggist, uh, as I said, in Hartford, and they began producing root beer extract so that families could purchase this extract, mix it into water at home, create their own soda. And this was huge. I've found advertisements um, beginning as early as 1890, well into 1930, so several decades, super popular. Their advertising campaign was seriously impressive. They had a song that you could, or you could buy sheet music for the song for Williams Root Beer Extract. Really, so kind of a, I'd like to teach the world to sing, but you know, 1890s style. Oh, you have it here with you. Uh, the naked truth about Williams root beer extract. If you are wise, you will drink. And it is anything too good to put in your stomach? I mean, that's a philosophical question, isn't it? Yeah. Well, it's really interesting to the ways that they advertised this beverage. So again, we're thinking, you know, healthy, it's good for you. The extract is made from roots and herbs, right? So it's good. And then also in the temperance movement context, this is a beverage that your kids can drink, moms and dads can drink. It's a whole family experience and it's cool and refreshing, it kind of checks all of the boxes. So what was, I've always wondered this, you know, root beer, what is in root beer? Like what roots are we talking about? Yeah, great question. So this is really cool. We actually have the recipe from 1897 for Williams root beer extract and in it, um, among other ingredients, there was mint, sassafras, and clove oil, as well as pipsisua, which is a, a wintergreen plant, mint, and hops extracts. 
So that kind of gives you a bit of an idea of the different flavors that are being combined to make this root beer extract. I really wonder if modern root beer has any any of those. I mean, obviously, I mean, I doubt it has any natural ingredients in it. The average root beer you buy on the store shelves from like a, a national bottling brand. But I wonder if the flavor has any relation to what it tasted like or what they were calling root beer 120 years ago. Maybe we should do a, maybe we should go back to the museum and do a little, um, little experiment. You want to get some, I don't know where you get hops extract, but we could try it out. What do you think? I would love to. Let's try Totally on board with that. (laughs) Maybe we'll do a future episode about what happened to us after we brewed and drank that. Um, (laughs) Do some taste testing. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing that when you read that, that recipe, nowhere on that recipe does it say sugar. What it made me think of was how sweet was that stuff? And obviously today, it's interesting when you think soda's roots are, you know, from medicinal beverages or beverages that are considered good for your health. And we've gone so far in the other direction today where soda is, you know, widely reviled and I guess rightly as something that is not really that good for you, mostly because of the sugar content. Um, Did people at, at the height of the soda fountain popularity, right? Before we understood the dangers of too much sugar or even before this stuff had a lot of sugar in it. Were there any concerns about the health effects of drinking soda? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, As far as I can tell, not really as far as the sugar is concerned. Um, Because again, you're kind of thinking about this carbonated, minerally water, it's got good benefits, you're going to add some simple syrup that was probably mixed in with the extract, Um, so, so it was sweet but they weren't really thinking about that as possibly negating whatever benefits right. there might have been. But I, I did see in my research there was some concerns about purity of ingredients. We've talked about that a little bit already. Making sure that there were real true fruit juices and, and other natural ingredients in here instead of artificial flavorings. I did a little bit of sleuthing on my own and I found a couple of articles from you know the early 20th century where there was concern about soda fountains not so much because of what they were selling but the fear that the that they would um, spread germs due to lack of cleanliness and it kind of made me think about that in terms of the growth of the soda fountains popularity probably for a lot of Americans coincided with their first forays into buying food or consuming food that's cooked outside their house, right? Because you could, you know, if you think about restaurants at the turn of the century, you could, you know, what you're getting at a restaurant, it's not that different from what you're going to get if you cook a meal at home, right? Um, But you can't do the soda fountain experience. You can't have that variety of flavors, right? You can't get the social experience of watching the soda jerk, you know, um, draw your glass or, you know, any of the, if they're also doing things like ice cream sundaes, you can't really do that at home. So the, it does seem to me that it it kind of made sense that suddenly there's this concern, oh, we got to make sure that these soda fountains aren't, you know, the glasses aren't, they're washing the glasses properly so they don't spread germs. I saw one proposal that was like, we really should have them all use disposable paper cups so that they don't spread germs between customers but that just doesn't feel the same as like here's your paper I guess we do that every day when we hit the drive-through right but um it doesn't feel the same as sitting at a nice like marble counter and having someone like mix you a drink right in front of you it's interesting that you bring that up because I have seen a couple of 
resources that were put out specifically for soda fountain dispensers, you know, recommendations, we could call them best practices, and they do highlight the hygiene. And I believe there was one recommendation that the countertops should always stay so clean that a, a clean white cloth would not pick anything up, right? So you are constantly cleaning up after yourself. Remember there was one suggestion to have a, a tub of spoons and to put a little sign on there saying that they've been sanitized, you know, in between uses and to make sure that you did do that. Uh, so you're absolutely right. There was this concern that with all this activity around the fountains and people, you know, using different glasses and things, you want to keep everything clean and sparkling. Yeah, that seems, it's very, it seems to me, it's very like sort of a progressive era concern with public health and hygiene. Connecticut had an insane number of soda bottlers back in the day. What about now? Well, the once frothy industry has long gone flat, that is for sure. I see what you did there. I'll, I'll allow it. <laughs> However, uh, it is really neat that we still have three bottlers in the state of Connecticut that are all over 100 years old, and you can still go and purchase soda from them. Avery's in New Britain um, started in 1904 by Sherman F. Avery, who was an early member of uh, that Bottlers Association that I mentioned earlier. And they're kind of pretty well known for doing unique flavors around different times, presidential elections, COVID, they, they make honorary flavors for different events um, to kind of keep things current. The second one that's still around is the Hosmer Mountain Bottling Company. Uh, which was started in 1912, originally spring water, and then developed over into soda. And they actually have two different distribution centers, one in Wellmantic and one in Manchester. And then the third company is Fox and Park, which is down in East Haven, and that one was founded in 1922. As of last year, all three of these companies have been around for a full century, which I think is pretty neat. Elena, the reason I have you here today as my soda expert is that you've been working on a small exhibit for the Historical Society. What did the CHS have in its vaults that enabled you to tell the story of soda? Yeah, well, to start, a lot of bottles. And they're not all going to be on display, but if you're interested in seeing a few of them, they, they will be out um, representing you know, different towns. I've been able to identify known bottlers in 32 different towns representing every different county in the state. And obviously we're not representing those all there, they're not all in our collection, but you can see a few of them. We also have a number of items related to Williams and Carlton who made that root beer extract. We have a box, a really cool colorful box that that extract would have come in. We have some really interesting trade cards so you can get even more insight into some of the advertising angles that they were taking with that. Um, those will be the main highlights of the exhibit. I will make sure to put the Williams root beer extract recipe in the show notes so people at home can try it for themselves. Although I think I should officially take the position of don't try this at home just for legal purposes. Thank you, Elena, for being here today. This was a pleasure, and I think maybe I might be getting myself a soda um, after we stop recording. I don't know about you. Sounds great. I'll join you with that. All right, great. Thanks. Thanks for listening. 
You can check the show notes to find the recipe for Williams and Carlton's root beer extracts and some images of vintage Connecticut soda fountains. Let us know what your favorite soda pop flavor is on the Grating the Nutmeg Facebook page or in a comment under our show notes. Fresh episodes of Grating the Nutmeg are brought to you every two weeks with support from our listeners. You can help us continue to produce the podcast by donating directly to Grating the Nutmeg on the Connecticut Explored website at ctexplore.org. Click the donate button at the top, then look for the Grading the Nutmeg donation link at the bottom. Donations in any amount are greatly appreciated. We thank you. This episode of Grading the Nutmeg was produced by Natalie Belanger and engineered by Patrick O'Sullivan at High Wattage Media. Join us in two weeks for our next episode. I'm Mary Donahue for Connecticut Explored. Thank you.